Okay, so first of all, you have to understand, it was a joke. A joke. I'm at a party for some people I don't know, and I meet this guy, Joe. I ask him, hey man, where you from? He says, oh, I'm from Canada. And being from Michigan, the borderlands, I know all Canadians think Americans are idiots. So I play along. Canada, eh? Uh, do you know my friend Bart Yeomans? Funny, right? Ha ha, funny joke. But this guy, Joe, he thinks about it. Considers. Uh, uh, the Saskatchewan area. Yeah. His folks live right outside of Regina. Dude, older sister Kate. No way. Oh, sure, sure. I've known Bart for years. I say a random Canadian guy's name from summer camp. And this other Canadian person just happens to know him? From a country with 35 million people? I start looking around for the cameras or whatever. I'm sure someone's trying to punk me. But this guy, he's completely non-fake. Just takes another pull of beer. Oh yeah, happens all the time. When you're from Canada, you know the world's a small place. Maybe. Maybe. Or perhaps... All Canadians have magic powers. So today, on Snap Judgment, from WNYC Studios, we proudly present One in a Million. Amazing stories from real people trying to break these odds. My name is Lynn Washington. Remember to ask every Canadian if they know that other Canadian when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now then, for the very first story of the One in a Million episode, you've always imagined, Helen, that there's another you out there somewhere. I know I have. A secret twin, a hidden doppelganger. Well, what if you knew exactly where she lived? So this is a story about Katie Crouch. I liked my name growing up. I liked the name Katie. Katie Crouch was my grandmother's name, so that was the first other Katie Crouch that I knew. So soon after college, I think I was Googling my name, and I came across Katie Crouch, who had graduated from college the same year I did, and she was my same age. And so I just remember making a mental note that another Katie Crouch existed out there, And then a couple years later, Katie went to a friend's wedding in Miami. And this guy came up to me that I had never met, had a big smile on his face, and he said, excuse me, are you Katie Crouch? And I said, yes. And he said, I know the other Katie Crouch. And as it turned out, the other Katie Crouch also had red hair, also worked in publishing, and at the time also happened to live in San Francisco. So it kind of brought her into reality even more. Like, is this really my doppelganger? What, you know, are we destined to meet? So when I got back to San Francisco, I emailed her. I wrote something like, how crazy. We both live in San Francisco and have the same name. Let's meet up. And there was no response. Katie eventually moved to New York City, looking for a change of scenery. 
And almost immediately, she started receiving online friend requests from people looking for the other Katie Crouch, who was now also living in New York City. For Katie, the coincidences just kept stacking up. So she decided to email the other Katie again, suggesting they meet up. And she got it. And I know that because she responded, neat, take care. Her response really shut me down. I was disappointed. I thought, well, maybe it ends there. I moved back to San Francisco, and I'd be at different establishments like Kabuki Spring Spa or REI or different places where they say, oh, Katie Crouch on Upper Terrace. And I would say no. And I realized that's her. She's back. She lives in San Francisco again. I can't believe it. I gave it one more shot. So I sent her an email. I think it was brief. Hey, you know, you live up the hill from me. We should meet sometime for coffee. We're both back in San Francisco. And she never responded. It sounds like such a sad story from my perspective. I just kept reaching out like, this can't be. You have to be more open to this. But clearly, and for whatever reason, the other Katie Crouch wasn't open to this. So Katie resolved to move on and leave the other Katie Crouch behind her. Although that proved to be kind of impossible. I received an email from Katie's mom with a link to vacation photos on Walgreens.com. I went to Walgreens.com and created an account so that I could look at the photos. Photos of Katie and her family by the lake. And I saw that she had just had a baby girl. I realized that this was not a window into her life that she had granted me by any means. But I, it made me feel good to see her happy with her baby girl by the lake. And I responded to her mom and said, you got the wrong Katie, you must have the email wrong. I think I knew at that point there would be no way to shut it off because the emails and the phone calls and the crossed wires just kept coming. And then came the book. In 2008, the other Katie Crouch published her debut novel, Girls and Trucks. It got raving reviews and secured a spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And I immediately started receiving congratulations and accolades. Someone actually sent me a clipping of the review and said, congratulations, when did you find the time? I saw it on the shelves in tons of places, and so did friends of mine who would take a picture of it on the shelf and text it to me and say, here's your book. I was a creative writing major. I wrote fiction and poetry in college, and I work as an editor in, in publishing. So just the fact that I had not yet published novel was just kind of rubbing it in my face a little bit that she was out there and she was quite successful with it. From that point on, Katie's online existence was pretty much usurped by the other Katie Crouch. Google the name and you get links to Katie Crouch, best-selling author. Katie Crouch, Girls in Trucks. So this Katie's one solace. She got to Twitter first. I do have the Katie Crouch handle on Twitter. She had to be Katie A. And that felt good just to claim a little piece of the online world for myself. I think at that point, my attitude was just to be a good name neighbor and forward messages along that were misdirected. But I stopped trying to be too friendly about it. 
because I felt like for whatever reason, she really didn't want to know me. Two years ago, Katie got a text from a good friend. OMG, Katie, she's writing about you and sent the link. So obviously I clicked the link and was quite amazed to see what she had written. The other Katie Crouch had just published an essay on Aussie.com, an online magazine. The title was The Other Me. It was about me. Obviously, my first impulse was to make sure that I came out looking okay. Like, does, is she going to make me sound like a jerk? So I read it really fast, and then I read it more slowly. The essay is quick and punchy. In just under 800 words, the other Katie lists a series of misencounters, like going to the video store and learning Katie had rented DVDs on her account, and the time Katie took two of her prepaid yoga classes. And then she met someone who happened to know Katie and had great things to say about her. She didn't make me look bad. She made me look great. She made me sound friendly and open. But instead of feeling compelled to meet this Katie because of all they shared in common. One of the last lines of her essay is, it's not you, I just don't want to know. Why, what is she doing writing about it? If you really wanted to pretend that I don't exist, maybe don't write an essay about me in a magazine that has thousands of readers. I knew the minute I finished reading it that I was going to write uh, a rebuttal. I got an email saying the other Katie Crouch's essay is up and you should read it. It's funny. This is the other Katie Crouch who published the first essay and, to my surprise, was very willing to talk about it. I remember going to Ozzy.com, and I had sweaty palms, and my, my heart was beating. I was nervous because it was going to be someone else talking about me, you know. And I clicked on it, and it was, you know, very disarming. Katie's essay was a lot more candid and forthcoming. She talks about her desire to meet her doppelganger, she talks about the rejected emails and also the impact of Katie Crouch's novel. But it's the end of her essay that really struck this Katie Crouch the most. I felt a little like I had my hackles up because that last line. Which reads, A few years ago, she became a mom. Last year, I did too. I thought I saw her sitting outside a cafe downtown last week, staring into her smartphone. We'd have so much to talk about. The forces of the universe insist that we're two sides of the same coin, but I want a better ending. The writer and her should, too. It's such a taunt. <laughs> it's such a taunt. <laughs> she definitely put me in my place. Yeah, I felt a little bit chastised. Um, I, did, I did reach out. I was sitting at work and my phone popped up with a notification and said, Katie Crouch wants to be friends on Facebook, which, as you can imagine, is kind of a trip when your name is Katie Crouch. It's like confusing what's happening. And I realized it was her. And this is shocking because being friends on Facebook is pretty much the opposite of ignoring someone. Facebook is sort of the perfect non-reach out, reach out. It's like so easy. You just click a button and say, hey, and then I kind of covered my bases that way, I felt. You know, I, I Facebook messaged her saying, you know, thanks for writing the essay. It was it was a great essay. Did she respond to your message? Yeah, in an equally, you know, cool way, in a um, diplomatic, non-personal non way. You're, you know, I loved your essay, too. 
Yeah, I responded briefly because by now I'm feeling kind of burned. I accepted her friend request. I was like, let's just get used to that and then see what happens next. But as the months passed by, there would be no other direct messages or posts between the two Katies. It seemed like this was it. Two dueling essays for the record and the status of Facebook friends. But really, after all these years living somewhat parallel lives, this is how their story is going to end? Are we, we're recording? We are recording. Great. So, um, Katie, I'm going to hand you over to Katie. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. It's Katie. It's Katie Crouch. Hi. It's Katie Crouch. So I knew arranging this phone call was going to be risky. Like, where is this conversation going to go? Which does lead to some early awkward moments. <laughs> I'm feeling strangely nervous. I'm not even strange. I'm just feeling nervous. Like, I'm totally nervous. <laughs> this is a big moment. Um, wow. So, uh, where so do where I do we start? It started slow. During the first few minutes, they filled the air with small talk. But of course, there's an elephant in the room. And the question is, who's going to address it first? So I didn't know if something changed after the essays. Like, I became a real person to you that you might want to know. And before that, I was sort of an inconvenience. No, you were never, Katie, you were never an inconvenience. I didn't quite know where it would go if we met. And also, I, I don't know. I didn't. I just. I wanted. I wanted to hold on to my individuality. It's Katie Crouch. It was just about me, really. It was all my buried anxieties and neuroses. <laughs> but it's nice to talk to you now. I had no idea what your perspective would be on the whole thing, and I was really motivated to write my response. I don't know if it, if you expected that or knew that it was coming, but I just felt like it was inevitable that I had to respond. Well, I um, I was definitely surprised that you wrote an essay, but I wasn't, it made sense, you know, I wasn't like, you're, I mean, I think your essay was a little more barbed than mine was. <laughs> um, so one line in your essay was a little, was particularly prickly to me, and maybe you didn't mean it to be, and that was um, that you picked up my book, Girls and Trucks, and read it, and then... Your next line was, I didn't want to like it, and then, period. And then, instead of saying, but I did like it, you said something like, you know, you said something else. <laughs> so it just... No, it means I did like it. I just, I felt jealous about it, you know, and you sort of blew me off. So I was like, I hope this is just terribly written. <laughs> and it... and. I guess I meant for that to be a little bit hanging, like implying, yeah, I, I grudgingly really liked it. Well, I'm glad you liked but it. But you're right. Yeah, I was, you I pick was sensitive. I am very sensitive about my writing. And I was, um, even though I pretend not to be, I don't care if she doesn't like it. She doesn't. <laughs> I wasn't super sensitive about that because I was just feeling envious and a little hurt. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, 
thanks. I, I get it. I think the truth is we are really different people. And the proof of that is how we've communicated thus far really differently. Right. Yeah. But your essay drove it home to me that you, you know, yes, this is a real person and, you know, not just an idea. And it's much harder to say no or to ignore a real person than the, an idea of a person. So I think that's that's what changed. Um, and, and, and the fact that the essay was so honest and like, I liked that it was barbed. That makes for good writing. It was honest. The conversation takes a detour here. They give each other a status update. The first Katie moved to Chicago back in August. The second Katie just had another kid and is actually taking off to Africa for a year. And the first Katie opens up about choosing to have her son on her own. I don't know if you knew that I had him on my own. Which I think is completely amazing. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, really, like, I had wanted to do that for the longest time, and then um, something else happened, but I think that's... But that would have been really crazy if we'd both done that. Oh, my gosh. We would have met a lot sooner because it's a very tight group in San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually the organizer for Single Moms by Choice in San Francisco until I moved away, so I was pretty active in that group of amazing kick-ass women. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. I knew you were better than I was. (laughs) Oh, stop it. (laughs) And you play the violin. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not perfect, Katie Crouch. (laughs) You are to me. Oh. (laughs) Okay, so however you guys want to... Wrap it up? Wrap it up. That's a tough one. What if we never talk again? Well, while you're out of the country for a year, maybe we could both reflect on what happens next. A very big thank you to Katie Crouch and to Katie Crouch for sharing their story. This was done in collaboration with Ozzy.com. We love the Ozzy. Check them out. The online magazine that published both Katie's essays We'll have links to both at snapjudgment.org. Katie Crouch works for an educational publisher. She raises a toddler on her own and writes a blog, thesolomamaproject.com. While Katie Crouch, the New York Times bestselling novelist, she's currently working on a thriller about doppelgangers. (laughs) Not really. Maybe. The original score for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by the one and the only one Nancy Lopez, because there are no other Nancy Lopez's up in this piece. Now, when Snap Judgment continues, we beat the odds in the worst way, and then in the best way, and then in the worst way again. Kinda. When the one in a million episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the one in a million episode. Today, things that are absolutely positively not supposed to happen, happen. And our next story comes to us from our friends at the Outside Podcast from Outside Magazine. 
Okay, the storm was an unusual one in that it involved um, really hard-blown sleet. Phil Broskovic's story begins on the side of a cliff in Colorado, 1,600 feet above the Gunnison River. He and Joe Callahan are asleep on a hanging platform they assembled on the wall. They're five nights into a six-day climb. Joe and I did an, one of the earliest ascents of a route uh, in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which was considered the hardest wall in America at the time. It was 1990. Phil was 32 and at the peak of his abilities. But not for all that much longer. So we went down there, and for five days there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was beautiful temperatures. And uh, at about four in the morning, life took a different turn, and I woke up to the worst storm I've ever seen. And I w we were in the middle of it. And we waited for the dawn in terror, and there was nothing to do but climb. You're climbing for your life. You're not climbing because it's fun. You've got to get off of this thing. Anybody who's ever been around a lightning strike on the mountain, whatever, you can hear the charge build. You can hear the crackling. You can hear the buzzing build up. And it was deafening. I was buzzing. I was humming. My entire, you know, everything was just, um, you know, just, but, and then it discharged this bolt. I mean, this bolt uh, hit the river. Hit the river 1,600 feet below us. And, I mean, it's like, if it does that, why didn't it take me out at that time? Why didn't it take us both out? How do you, how do you make sense of that? I'm just groveling up this thing, hands and knees and elbows and teeth and everything, and I get to the railing and I just start going a little berserk. I sounded like a longshoreman on steroids. I, was, I came up with cuss words nobody ever heard. I grab handfuls of the loamy earth and I rub it all over my face. I throw it in the air. I grovel my hands and my shoulders. And now I've always had this fantasy of doing some spectacular climb and meeting like a supermodel and having an affair. And I get there and I'm groveling and I hear a giggle. <laughs> and there's this beautiful woman. And I ask her, I said, how long have you been there? And she said, long, long enough. If it were one of those other unbelievable stories, Phil's close call would have led to an affair with a woman at the top of the climb. But that's not actually how lightning or life works. He never saw the woman again. In fact, shortly after that, Phil's climbing days came to an end. Complications from a knee injury led to total knee replacement surgery. He was one of the youngest recipients ever. And as he was recovering, he moved in with Julia Hallaby. Julia was a friend from college. Maybe a little bit more than a friend. I guess the term they use now is friends of benefits, but we didn't say it back then. Of course, they fell in love, got married, and had kids together. By all accounts, they had a good marriage, and his daughter Amber said that Phil was an exceptional father. There's uh, the fun parent and, you know, the strict parent, and my dad was always a fun parent. So that was Phil for more than a decade. By the time his kids were a little more grown up, his leg had healed, and he was ready to start climbing again. 
which brings us to Wyoming in August 2005. So this, it, it started as just one of our regular camping trips that we went on. Phil and his family are climbing at Vitavu, um, a stack of smooth granite that juts out of the prevailing Wyoming flatness, like a stack of blocks on the carpet that someone forgot to put away. It's just north of the state line, about two hours from Boulder. It seemed like a normal Vitavu day or a normal climbing day in the fall, beautiful blue skies and, you know, colors on the earth and all that kind of stuff. We went up to um, this climb called Edwards Crack, which is, for me, very easy climb. When it started getting cloudy and started getting dicey, nobody was upset, nobody was fretting, really, at the time. Um, it's like, oh, the rain's coming, we should take a break. And by that time I was nervous because it was already thundering. The storm started rolling in quicker, and I started to try to go. For some reason, I had an urge to get back to my mom. And it all happened. If I go there, I can remember it in, to the smell. I can remember it to the cellular level. You know, they say your light flashes before your eyes. Well, it took forever. As best as anyone who was there can tell, lightning struck the rock. And it just... And it traveled down, hopping out of the granite and into Phil's body, splashing him with a massive dose of electricity. Hanging off the rock, Phil saw a huge blast of light, heard a sound like a grenade, felt a thousand wasps stinging him from the inside. The blast threw him off the ledge he was on, and after it was done, he hung there on the rope, totally limp. I, I ran to my mom, and we were all crying out and screaming out for my father to respond, and he wasn't. It felt like 15 minutes, but I think it was really, in reality, two or three. And he said, I'm okay. Well, I'm okay, I'm okay. I think that's the first thing I said. And, um... <clears throat> Phil lowered himself to the ground, and they all took shelter from the storm. And in that moment, he seemed basically fine. No burns or bruises or smoke coming from his ears. Phil works as an electrician, which, yeah, that's pretty funny. But it also meant that he was familiar with what electrical shocks usually look and feel like. They burn the skin, almost cooking the flesh. But lightning is different. Because of its speed, it doesn't have time to do a lot of physical damage. It's more like hot potato. The thing is, is if there's no blood or broken bones, you don't think that it's that serious. He was not necessarily himself, but he was not not himself either. But the next day, I woke up and my body hurt. I mean, if I stood up, I couldn't stand up straight. I was crumpled almost, you know. Uh, And just, I mean, I felt like my hair hurt, my fingernails. It just was, you know... And then I remembered, I started... After the initial strike, every lightning victim is sort of on their own script. But a lot of people try to shake it off. The one that caught me first was when I just started realizing I couldn't control my body temperature. He would be like, it's so cold in here. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? And I've, I mean, prior to that, I mean, I was almost immune to the cold. You know, I was the guy out there that you look at like, oh, idiot, put a coat on, you know. Or vice versa in the winter. We're all, like, you know, cold and have, like, the heater blasting, and he's sweating, wearing shorts. <laughs> wearing shorts in the middle of January, like. It took a long time to realize that 
something was not firing or sending the right message. And that was that was probably the most obvious when, you know, for a decade the man had kept me warm and he no longer could. But even more obvious were the mental problems. Phil would try and write something down and be completely stumped trying to spell the word the. It's like all of a sudden a relatively intelligent person is talking as if he was like a blind blind monkey slapping at the keyboard. You can't make sense. I wouldn't be able to remember what I just said. Just now. In the weeks and months after the accident, Phil's behavior became more and more erratic. The calm, competent, thoughtful old Phil had to share family time with angry, nervous, short-tempered Phil. Sometimes he would go into what he calls fugue states, a kind of mental dark period in which he was confused, pissed off, and hypersensitive to light and sound. You become a bag of shattered glass, really. Uh, everything would bother me. The, sli- the noises like that the trinkling in the, in the water or the stepping on stairs or something like that would just have me on my teeth on edge, you know, wanting to like, you know, just snap. How would you cope in those moments? I would cope by finding a fetal position in a dark corner and waiting for the world to go away. We were having dinner one night, and as always, me and my brothers, we started to bicker. And next thing I know, he literally drops his fork. What is happening right Pushes now? the plate away from him and stands up. So angry. such a fit. Fight all the time. Go away. And he literally talk couldn't to you even right talk now. to us. What do you mean you can't he talk to couldn't even me. look at us. He couldn't be around us. I went downstairs. I went to my father to see if he was okay, and he said, go away. And that's when I kind of like stood back. I was like, there is something wrong. It's just not who I am, but I couldn't help it. Eventually, Phil and Julia came to the recognition that he was just not the same guy. They divorced in 2012. I, I don't doubt that lightning changed him. And I just think that we weren't as, as suited to each other after that. In Boulder, when the sky turned gray and clumped with storm clouds, Phil would be overcome by anxiety. Little things could set him off, too. The thunderous sound of a rolling garbage can could bring him to tears, for example, or the flash of a strobe light. One time, in the grocery store produce section, the lights started blinking, and a thunder sound effect played to signal that the vegetable misters were about to turn on. Phil had a breakdown. You go into these cycles, you drop into the abyss and you pull out of it, and the fear becomes that the next time you drop into that hole, you're done. You're gone. Can I ask uh, maybe just an obvious question, but why don't you go somewhere that doesn't have the storms? (laughs) That's a good question a lot of people ask. I live here. I breathe here. I've traveled a lot of places and have dug a lot of places, and there are other places I've lived and have enjoyed. I come back here, it smells right. It feels right. I can't explain it other than um, it's home. So if he was going to live in Boulder, Phil had to find a way to make peace with the lightning. He developed coping mechanisms that kept him calm, and slowly he started getting better. He couldn't be out in a storm, 
but after a while he'd be okay sitting it out in his car, and he could function after it passed. The thing was, just as Phil got better, the lightning in Boulder got worse. This has been a really bad year. This year in particular has probably set me back three years, maybe more. Lightning storms that year got bigger and badder. So did thunderclouds. In Boulder, storms were coming over the Rocky Mountains almost every afternoon. To Phil, it seemed like they were coming for him. Every day was another five-pound weight put on my back. And, uh, you know, by the time the, the summer rolled in and the concert at Red Rock rolled in, I was primed for a massive meltdown. You know, it was sort of a last-minute deal. My, uh, my, my girlfriend got sick. David Rothstein is one of Phil's close friends. And I just sort of thought, well, maybe Phil will want to go. I said, oh, let me think about it. And I hung up. And I got, went online. And the weather indicated it was clearing. It was going to be 10% chance of storms and clearing. And so I called him up and said, yeah, let's go. I hadn't been to a concert at Red Rocks in a long time. Because, you know, that's this outdoor amphitheater and it's exposed. By the time we got there, it was packed. So we had to park way down at the bottom by the box office. And the first band had already started. And um, we hiked up and got our seats. And I'm looking at these clouds going, wait a minute. This isn't really clearing. I was looking at the hogbacks with another storm front moving in and they started to collide and I could feel it. I could feel this tension building. David, even before the lightning, recognized I was nervous. I was getting uncomfortable. He could see that I wasn't watching the stage of the band. I was watching the sky. I mean, we had been talking and, and he had been saying that he was rattled. That, that it was really starting to get to him. You know, I was like, wow, this is really cool, man. And I looked to my left, I think, and, you know, Phil's on the ground. I mean, cowered down um, and really, really obviously, uh, you know, he was terrified. Everybody else is standing up and dancing and having a good time. I don't want to stand up. It's like the hair is, is lifted up and I'm, but I literally, against my, all of my will, all of my will to be as heavy and gravity-bound as possible, I'm standing up. I'm finding myself standing up. I can't believe I'm standing up. And as that's happening, the biggest lightning, single lightning bolt I've ever seen in my life levels the ground. When it discharged, it was like the strings had been cut and I crumpled. I just flopped to the ground. And I was start I was shaking and I could just see I'm tunneling in. Well, I'm tunnel visioning in here. I'm starting hyperventilating. Within a, a heartbeat or two, there's a woman who's wrapped her arms around me. Yeah, I just saw this man sitting and just shaking. You know, just kind of curled in a ball and shaking. So I, I stepped down one bleacher and, and sat down next to him. and said, hey man, are you okay? <laughs> he said, no, I'm a lightning strike victim. I said, oh wow, you know what, I am too. He was like, oh, you know, where, where were you? And I said, Vitavu. 
only person I could think of in the universe that could have gotten me to snap into focus for self-rescue was a woman who was also struck in Vita Vu 10 years after me who was standing right behind me. Chris Norbrayton was struck while guiding a group of middle school girls. She had an experience eerily similar to Phil's. You, you ref- refuse to use the word coincidence with uh, Chris finding you. Right. And uh, what word do you use? Okay, first off, it's not unusual that people in this area would go to the similar, have similar musical tastes and go to a concert that was going to be a cool concert. Not unusual. Not unusual that in that crowd there might be a whole lot of people who climb. Maybe not unusual there could be a couple of lightnings in Colorado, a couple of people have been struck by lightning. Okay, I can get all those things. But to be struck on virtually the same rock formation in the same climbing area and to be standing back to, you know, back to front, that's just too hard for me to say, oh, well, that's just random coincidence. What word do I use? Thank you. Grateful. I can't put a concept word to it. Try to understand is all you can do and work with where you're at. A few weeks after the concert at Red Rocks, Phil was working at a job site and the storm rolled in. He dropped his tools and ran to his car. In the video he took, it's pretty clear where he's at, which means he's not completely lost. Had a meltdown. I don't drink booze. I don't do drugs. Except coffee. I've been through <clears throat> 13 surgeries. Dealt with a lot of pain. And I am not a pain pill junkie. I'm not a lost soul. I am a productive individual when I'm together. But I'm not together right now. It's hard to explain what it feels like to be a constant target. It's not like people have a fear of heights, which you can deal with if nothing else, by staying away from them. Being afraid of the sky, where are you going to (laughs) go? Stop. Please stop. version of the story originally aired on the Outside Podcast from Outside Magazine. Their first season investigates the science of survival and is supported by PRX and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. To hear more episodes from the Outside Podcast, find them on iTunes or visit their website at outsideonline.com slash podcast. 
The original score and sound design was by Robbie Carver. The story is produced by Peter Frick Wright and Robbie Carver. The production assistance by Liz Mack and Leon Morimoto. Oh yes, Snappers, we get it. Stories are life. Stories make the world go round. But we've got you. More full-length Snap Judgment exclusive stories than you can even shake your million-dollar winnings at. Subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast. iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get yours, get yours. Snap was produced by the team that is certainly one in a million. Burn sage and incense for the Uber producer himself, Mr. Mark Ristich. Our executive, executive producer. Find out how you can get that distinction. Tony, the contributor. Chuck. Pat and CeeDee Miller, Anna Sussman, Nancy Lopez, Joe Rosenberg, Renzo Gorio, Liz Mack, Liza Smith, Adiza Egan, Leon Morimoto, Taylor DeCott, guest starring Jasmine Aguilera. And perhaps you've heard that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could discover the secret to why all Canadians know each other. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. WNYC.